Good day and welcome to the Frontline Chatter podcast. My name is Jarian Gibson, uh, back again here after the new year. Um, I'm happy to have our special co-host on, uh, Roy Monahan. How you doing, Roy? I'm doing really good. I'm excited to be back and thanks for having me. Yeah, happy new year. Happy to be back in things. I know we, we kind of uh, been away for a little bit after, you know, between the holidays and the new year, but uh, happy to be back and happy to talk about uh, our, our guest we have on today. Do you want to go ahead and introduce our guest today, Roy? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, so we're here today with Steve Greenberg. Steve is the founder, president, and principal architect of Thin Client Computing, who have been providing high-quality expert services in the virtualization space to customers across the United States for over 20 years. In his career, Steve has been deeply entrenched in the various Citrix products, going way back to the very beginning in the early 90s, right up to present day. He's somebody who has a really great insight when it comes to virtualization and end-user computing. I can think of no one better to talk to today about some of the changes in enterprise IT that are going on right now. Steve has also been a champion for the tech community and was awarded as one of the first Citrix CTP fellows. Steve and the team at ThinkLine Computing have held over 60 community events. Today, we are recording this podcast just a few weeks before the fourth annual EUC Master's Retreat in Scottsdale, Arizona. We'll talk about that and much more. So to start things off, welcome, Steve. How are you today? Fantastic. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. We're excited to have you. Great. Great to speak with you both. Yes, uh, very excited to have you on and, and talk about, you know, what you've been doing, where you've been, um, you know, things coming up like your EUC Master Retreat and, and so forth. But, uh, you know, before we, we dive all the way in, Kind of tell us about how you got your start in your tech career. Um, it's funny. I actually started in music production and electronic music and digital music early on, like in the 80s. I was working in recording studios and doing that kind of work. In the early 90s, through a, a bunch of changes of kind of personal situation, I got the opportunity to just make a lateral move right into IT. And it was funny because... Um, it was so natural. I thought it was going to be this completely new thing, but having already worked on like networking equipment and always, you know, trying to stay up on manuals and stuff, um, getting into IT, especially in that time frame, was really cool and a lot of fun because you pretty much had to teach yourself everything back then, you know, talking early 90s, and you'd build computers and try operating systems and, you know, just go through everything. And, and the, the, like they're like BBSs, but not really internet quite at the beginning, and that started to hit. Um, in the in the mid 90s um, so it really came from like a music production background but like I always like to comment it was just really fun how um, they overlapped so much and they still do today actually they keep intersecting because um, they stay active in music production and that's very technology based oh, that's really interesting and I guess you're kind of so entrenched in um, Citrix in particular and virtualization um, how did you maybe transition? Like, where did you start in your IT and tech career um, from like an enterprise IT perspective? And then how did you get to where things are today where you're very um, virtualization and end user computing focused? Yeah, that's also really interesting. You know, it's just a bunch of dumb luck, really. I was working at uh, SunSource International. It was a health products company. It was very rapidly growing. And um, they had some unique needs where in those days it was kind of like the, there was no winner of the operating system war, you know, so you had like Novell and OS2 and various flavors of Windows coming up. 
and different applications, and we needed a way to integrate them all. And um, the reseller consulting we were working with at the time said they had just seen this small company emerging out of Florida called Citrus. He said Citrus at first, not Citrix. And uh, it took me a little bit to find them, and they just solved problems from day one. And as much as it's changed over like 25 years, it's hard to believe that's long, it's really actually solving many of the same problems. So, you know, all the names and faces change, but what we're trying to do is deliver applications to people in different contexts across different platforms. That part's pretty much the same. Um, but that, that was how, it was like an, you know, an enterprise that was rapidly growing and needed to do stuff, and um, Citrix solved the problem. But it also meant uh, testing every kind of new technology around virtualization that came out through all those years. Um, so it was actually a few years later, but when VMware emerged, I was using it at you know one o two o, that kind of that kind of phase. Okay, cool. And um, like I said in the intro, you're founder of your own company, president, but you're also still a principal architect, so quite technical. But that's like a lot of hats to wear and. You guys are, I could speak from experience, you're a very popular company and a lot of organizations, particularly in Arizona where you're based, um, want to work with you. So can you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do day to day in your work right now? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm really happy to talk about that because in the different presentations or blogs or Twitter, you know, you, I don't get to really talk about actually what I do every day. So I appreciate that question. It's, a, it's really a fun, challenging mixture of you know, business, community, and, and technical stuff. And then also a lot of time organizing resources and people because projects are, over, are la overlapping all the time. But the main role that I like to focus on is the architect. Um, so having you know, started with Citrix so early and brought it up as I was describing at SunSource, you know, to solve problems for a real company that was growing fast. I'm always looking at the technology curves, what works, what doesn't work, the, uh, the needs of the business that we're talking to, the skill set, which is a big factor in designing. So I'm, you know, architecting all the time and also architecting on the fly because you always come across problems, right? So any one day might be a mixture of like doing some architecture work, like actually designing or reviewing attending like project meetings, working on community events, um, having to do things in the business. So it's a big challenge, but it's fun. I like to be busy and do a lot of stuff. So let's talk about the, the name. Um, and probably, I know Roy's thinking this, probably our listeners probably thinking this as well. Um, but why the name Thin Client Computing? Yeah, you guys are asking great questions. I really appreciate that. Because uh, that, that's really kind of a funny story in a way. Um, the originally I was just a guy I had just moved to Arizona and I had to start you know kind of like register a name and it's a little bit of a play on words and it keeps changing meaning over the years and it, and it confuses people sometimes and then sometimes it comes in vogue and out of vogue <laughs> but the original idea was what we call EUC today has been named many things over the years and in that time frame it was called thin client slash server-based computing. And in conversation, sometimes you'd say thin client or server-based. It wasn't really this distinction. And the name was, hey, I had to register a business name. And it was almost a play on words in the sense of if you opened up like the phone book, which we had back then, you'd see like Southwest computing, you know, 
or you know, Phoenix Computing, like just kind of looked like a business name. It was a little bit of a play on words, thin client computing, like a computing service company that focused on thin client server-based computing. And then ironically, in the first years of the business back in the 90s, and even into the early 2000s, I actually sold a lot of thin clients. They were really popular as a mainstream solution. So that, you know, that kind of name was appropriate, but then the, the names change, the technology shifts, and it's just fun because it kind of comes in and out of vogue. And um, now after like 22 years, it's kind of back in vogue, thanks to iGel, I think, because um, thin clients used to be awesome, but frankly, the industry went astray a bit where some of the major vendors, particularly ones that were acquired by major players, really were providing kind of second-rate products, and they were fairly expensive, where back in the day, thin clients were like awesome, like really cheap, really easy to deploy, and um, you know, kind of a better paradigm. So the name stuck. At different times, it kind of went out of style, but I think we're kind of back in style at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, I would agree. And uh, back to the name, that that's very interesting how you how you chose that name and uh, and why the name. And I, I do agree because thin clients used to be all the rage back in the day. And then, like you said, through acquisitions, through changes of technologies, different OSs on them, and so forth, they kind of went away, kind of became a commodity. And it does seem today, when you think about thin clients, you think about iGel as kind of the the big one out there. Yeah, they're bringing it back, and it should be. And and what they're doing that's right is it's software. Right. And that's what really matters because endpoints are ubiquitous. Um, you know, even an older PC is a freaking supercomputer. So, you know, running like iGel software on there is perfect solution. So, you know, we're back. Right. Yeah. I mean, personally, I could say having worked with almost all of the major um, brands, I guess, for thin clients. Um, if updating a thin client means getting the end user at home to ship their thin client back or at a remote site to ship their thin client back. What's the point you're doing it wrong with iGel? Uh, they're really at the, I guess the bleeding edge of the um, thin client space, in my opinion, and they make the management so easy. It's, it's really a no brainer from my experience working with it. Um, so something that I really appreciate about working with thin client computing and having experience working with you directly before, Steve, is your focus on the actual end user experience. Not what IT thinks it should be and not what the business thinks it should be, but what the end user actually needs. Can you explain your approach in that respect when executing on a new customer project? Absolutely. Um, that has been, you know, I always say I'm not that smart. I've just been doing it a long time. I, I learn everything kind of the hard way. And one of the hard lessons was you can build a great technical solution, but if you don't integrate it with the business and really solve problems and connect with how people work on a day-to-day -day basis, it doesn't matter. They won't use it or care. Um, so I've learned to really focus on that. But I've also learned that some of the key architectural technical decisions that you really need to do the best work are actually found at the real edge like really going to where a person is working. And for some reason, IT people don't want to do that pretty much ever. It's very rare where an IT person says, yeah, let's go out you know, into the business. And a lot of times we actually have to push and sometimes you know, just kind of open up the kimono here, especially with customers, we have a long-term relationship. Sometimes there's friction 
And I've actually had to say to customers, um, I, I can't do this project unless you let me go into fill in the blank, your retail store or, you know, where your end, end users work. And they're always like, you don't need to do that, but I do. And I, I've actually evolved a methodology again through brute force of what works and doesn't work of how to go talk to end users. And it never ceases to amaze me that if I just go talk to the people that actually do the business functions every day, the, the important things I learn, and they absolutely affect the design of what I do on the back end. Um, so it's just really an important thing that is underemphasized. In some ways, it's so obvious you miss it, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, a lot of times they think if, if, as long as they can monitor things from the back end, you know, see, you know, green, um, green lights and, and nice dials on their dashboards, they, they think everything's okay. But going and talking to that end user and understanding that end user experience and workflow is one of the key things that will make or break your deployments. Would, would you agree with that? Absolutely. And, and it's hard to explain because it just doesn't sound that important because an IT guy says I'm busy. I've got the servers up, I have the app list, but it's the little things of what do they need to access? What are they trying to do? Uh, where's the data? You know, they're, 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 like the IT guy might not be aware that they're actually logging on to, you know, multiple locations, for example, of where the, the corporate data is, or that they're doing a secure, securitous process, like things like this. Like um, we had one customer that when we went and spoke to the users, somebody would go download, they'd go to a folder, open up a file like a PDF, print it and scan it <laughs> and put it back in the computer in a different folder, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's definitely a kind of a, a broken workflow there. So <laughs> speaking about, you know, end user experience and making sure they're happy, how do you strike a balance of, of giving them what they need, but also, restricting them enough to keep the company secure because security is a big thing and you don't want to leave yourself exposed. Yeah, that, that's a huge question. I don't even know if I can give you an answer. Um, we basically just have to, on a case-by-case -case basis, you know, lock it down as much as they're willing and it's becoming more and more critical. Um, we have had um, a number of customers we work with, clients or people came to us afterwards who've been literally wiped out by ransomware, you know, delete everything and restore from, you know, whatever platform you have. It's a serious, serious issue. It's getting a little bit out of hand. Um, so I guess the short answer is you have to err on the side of not accessing something to stay safe. But crazy enough, the, the biggest uh, exposure is really still phishing and email. And although we haven't deployed this yet, what I'm looking at is uh, Jeremy Moskowitz approach with Policy Pack where um, they basically don't let you execute things um, that you own like under your you know, ownership unless they've been pre-approved. So the idea is if you get a malicious executable, let's say by email, you'll own it because you, you're the one who downloaded the file and you can't run it. <laughs> um, yeah. That seems to be the best approach I see right now. Yeah, right on. I've, I've tried out that policy packs, um, I believe that they call it the secure run feature. It's pretty awesome. Um, in your experience, what are some of the most common mistakes made by those in enterprise IT when it comes to architecting an RDSH or VDI solution? 
Yeah. I, I don't, I, you know, my personality is I don't like to focus on like what's wrong or bad, but um, I'd say the biggest thing I'm seeing right now, it's changed over the years, um, is it's near impossible to stay up with the correct configurations and best practices unless you do it every day. And I, I, the, probably the biggest pitfall I see, I wouldn't even say it's a mistake because it's people trying to do the right thing, is getting information that was correct at one time and isn't now. Whether it's an operating system change, a patch, a cumulative update, um, it's incredible how fast it's changing. And um, I don't even have a good answer for this because we struggle with it ourselves. You know, best practices we did. We just found something the other day that, we were doing six months ago that causes a problem today. So it's keeping up. I just spoke at um, the Houston Excel event uh, last week. And um, what I was kind of pointing out to them was you really have to lean on community. Um, the best source of information and avoiding issues and making mistakes is just to talk to other people doing it and, you know, compare notes and be careful about what versions you're running and, figure out what works and doesn't work. You kind of just have to go with what works. And I think it's near impossible for somebody who's not doing this every day to jump in, you know, and be fully successful um, without working with an expert or having good community connections. That's a good point. And I found Joe Shonk's session uh, last year at your guys' XL event in San Diego. What um, was, was a really good session on that too, because how things change, how optimizations can impact, you know, yesterday versus today. And also too, you have to look at the rate of change is a lot faster than what we used to in the past. So um, it, it is some good things there, you know, relying on community and, and so forth. So those are very good points from, from not only you, but also Joe Shank as well. Yeah, I got to bring that up. So for people that don't know that Joe and I work together every day, he's a freaking genius. And he's a lot of the reason I can do what I do because I have somebody at an incredible level of skill and understanding. I mean, he knows infrastructure, Citrix, storage, networking, inside out. And he was trained as a programmer, you know, in his education. So he's a unique uh, unicorn rainbow guy. But the session Jarian's referring to is, um, roughly I'm paraphrasing, but it was unoptimize your system for maximum reliability and performance. <laughs> and, and his point was um, a lot of things that have floated around the interwebs as optimizations may actually cause issues. And it's very hard to navigate. So let's kind of shift uh, gears a little bit over to the, the partner side of things, because you've been like a, a very long standing Citrix partner for many years. And, you know, I used to work for a partner as well. I understand how partnerships can change no matter which vendor it is. So how has your partner relationship with uh, Citrix changed over time? It's like that phrase, it was the best of times and the worst of times. It's like this long relationship you know, that ebbs and flows and has like great positives and super negatives. And it's really just, you know, a, I have a very small company and I'm a very much an individual in the community, you know, trying to deal with a large entity where people are constantly changing roles and so forth. So it's, it's pretty up and down, but I've come to the point where, um, you know, it's just it, on net, it's positive and we do some great things together. As you know, I'm really big in the community and I think Citrix excels in that area. So, you know, it's kind of up and down and uh, business level can be frustrating and then it can be very rewarding. Uh, so there's just no easy answer, you know. 
probably true with any big company you get closely engaged with. Yep. And actually that probably segues very nicely into the next question that I have. Uh, a big topic of discussion in the end user computing space right now with Citrix customers is Citrix Cloud. Uh, what has been the impact of Citrix Cloud for your business? Yeah, it's, it's generally pretty positive. I think actually in the world of cloud and confusion and transitions that are going on, Citrix has one of the better offerings. Um, and the reason is they focus on the control plane you know, versus the data plane, or sometimes I call it the execution plane. So the control of sessions, like what we generally call brokering, but it's also proxying and identity and access management and so forth. Um, you know, Citrix focuses on their service being primarily the control plane of all of that. And I think that's awesome because they don't really have a preference or a direction on where the workload actually runs. And I think that's kind of a superior model. So we started, as um, soon as it came up, it was available with smaller customers who didn't have a lot of needs, and those were really successful. And then kind of mid-size customers came on board um, very successfully, and we're in the midst now of a larger, more true enterprise-style solution involving um, mergers of multiple companies where we're using Citrix Cloud as the control plane. And I think it's going to be pretty successful now, a little bit bigger scale you know, than we've done before. Um, the main concern I have right now, um, it was feature set, but they're closing that gap and sometimes having things first in cloud is um, the, you know, the SLA and the uptime. It's still not at the level you would have with your own redundant data center. That's kind of the thing to keep our eye on, I'd say. So do you think there's a kind of like a, a, a trade-off there, you know, depending on the, the customer needs and what the customer has uh, skill-wise and support-wise in their infrastructure? Yeah, that's a great question, Jari. And I know you have a lot of consulting experience. And that's why we always get criticized for consultants always say it depends. But, you know, it really does because you're going to make different moves depending on, like, your situation, but largely your skill set, too. Or sometimes it's not even skill set, it's just the, the, the raw number of people. You know, like they may have the skill set to manage a big Citrix environment, but there's only one or two of them. So you got to kind of offload some of it, right? But that's definitely a factor. Um, so if you're, if you're um, you know, paucity, your less resources are in kind of skill or number of people, I would lean more towards outside sourcing the control plane. But large organizations that have a well-developed team, you know, probably want to keep the control plane on premises because they already know how to do it. They may already have it in place, and there's not a great benefit. You know, the the 20 or so VMs that um, make up the control plane, maybe in one location, could be more, um, are are a non-issue. They're a blip, right? But in some smaller organizations, that's like, you know, that's how many servers they currently have, right? That kind of thing. So size, skill set, they're all factors. The other um, scenario we're looking at for Citrix Cloud, which we haven't done yet, we're talking to a customer, is a, another customer that grows by acquisition and it's all over the country. And they're going to hit a threshold where they kind of exceed their on-premises um, capacity. And it's kind of older versions of Citrix isn't built necessarily to best practice. So we're looking at a company like that that can use Citrix Cloud 
um, against their existing on-premises works uh, data centers, but then grow as they bring people on and maybe put up instances in like Azure, for example, even regionally, like if they buy a company in the Northeast, you know, use the closest Azure data center, but use Citrix Cloud to broker it, that kind of scenario. So I think we're going to see more and more of that where like the business need and the actual um, plans for the business, you know, benefit from like cloud. So speaking of uh, cloud here, let's talk about Microsoft. So, you know, Microsoft has Windows Virtual Desktop out, you know, it's available now, um, or WVD um, for short. Um, some say it could cause potential disruption, you know, to in the EUC space to like Citrix and, and VMware and others. What are your thoughts on, on WVD? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, I don't want to be the old guy who goes, oh, it's just like in the past. We see the same thing over and over, but there really is exactly like in 1997. Uh, Microsoft saw that um, thin client slash server-based computing was a big deal, and they bought Prolog and, and got RDP and then you know embedded terminal services in the operating system, right? And everyone thought that's going to kill the industry. Well, that's where it had another inflection point and grew dramatically you know, for 20 something years. Um, I think we're at that point too. Um, and initially I didn't, I thought maybe Microsoft's gonna kind of take this market, but now that I've really dived into WVD and see what it is and what it isn't, it's not a full featured, you know, uh, EUC solution. It's not even really uh, a well-managed, flexible virtual desktop platform. Um, it's really just a brokering a basic bones of brokering to get to Azure based machines that are desktops. And it's very, very good. It's cloud native, which is a key turning point, you know, in seeing some of these services be written cloud native. Um, but I don't think it's going to service certainly the majority of like enterprise or complex use cases. And I, I'd say it may not even work on the small end too until they have more of a management console. So the short answer is great functionality, great validation for the market. I think it will bring lots of Azure consumption over to them where people will run desktops there. But I think you're going to need third parties, whether it's Cloud Jumper or Nerdio, more for like managing it, building it, that type of thing, or Citrix or VMware for the remoting and the extra enterprise features. I think it's just going to grow the market, you know, at the bottom line. So let's say they, they do get the management piece right, whether through acquisition or they, they bring their own management out that you know, fixes the management concerns and can address some of those things you, you mentioned. Um, you know, pretty much today, it's Azure only. There's been talk about Azure stack. Do you think they need to expand that out to other um, infrastructure providers uh, to be successful? Yeah, that's a really interesting hypothetical, but they're two huge unicorns, right? Will Microsoft get it right and do a full featured, you know, fully powerful EUC brokering platform? Probably not, you know, and then will they expand to other clouds? I'd say absolutely not, because it's clear that their motivation in doing this is to drive Azure consumption. I don't know the latest statistics, Rory probably does. But you know, 1.6, 1.8, maybe now billion desktops in the world. They're looking at that, going, that could drive a lot of Azure, right? So I don't see it. And then also the Azure Stack thing, as I understand it, I'm first trying to un like dive in and really get my arms around this. 
it does let you run on-prem, but my understanding is you, you have to treat your on-prem then like it were an Azure, meaning like if I spin up a VM using Azure Stack on-prem, I'm paying like a usage bill like I would in Azure. So that's kind of weird, right? You're running on-premises, which may be totally valid use case, but then I'm, I'm paying them for my consumption. So there'll probably be use cases where that makes sense, but I don't think there'll be that many. Well, you talked a little bit about, you know, I guess where some of the value is in WVD or even in Citrix Cloud when you're talking about that too. Um, one of the benefits or one of the draws to WVD and actually what I feel of any like cloud offering is, you know, the apps and the software and like what's the draw of this offering versus somebody else's offering. And I feel like with WVD, with Office 365, and obviously with um, Microsoft acquiring FS Logics, which at least in my opinion was the best solution for managing um, the Office 365 profile in non-persistent desktops. Uh, I know they think line computing uh, partnered with FS logics for many years. So you have a lot of experience with that company and with the product. How do you feel about Microsoft acquiring FS logics? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, let me say, you know, we, we know each other well, but for people who are listening, Kevin Goodman was the founder of FS logics and he's been a cornerstone of the EUC community for a long time. He's built and, and successfully, you know, executed and, and sold multiple companies. And he started FS Logics when he kind of came to a great insight on user personalization profile and storing persistent data. Uh, and then I actually got in early as an investor. You know, I was tired of helping all these companies make millions of dollars and got involved. I believed in Kevin and what he was doing. So I've traced it from the beginning. The other one we were also involved in, but not financially, was um, Pierre, you know, Norscale, which became WEM. And those are tools, two very important game-changing tools. Um, but getting back to FS Logics, it's a great follow-up to WVD because there's a DNA there that's really, really critical. Um, the, the mindset that Kevin put in place and the people that he built around FS Logics mostly went to Microsoft as part of the WVD group. And you see them influencing things in really important ways, like making FS Logics licenses ubiquitous, you know, for the various delivery models, and for bringing in the thinking of uh, containerizing personalization. So it's very significant, and I think that's actually where WVD's greatest value is, exactly what you're hitting on, the ability to provide a desktop that has the abstraction of user personalization and user-created data, and actually has a great solution for the um, horrible modern design of shoving the entire new cloudy application into user space, right? So, you know, OSTs and Teams and all these things, and they're kind of unwinding that now, but it still assumes that you have pretty much unlimited storage and IOPS in your user space. So FS Logics addresses that. Um, so it's pretty much a perfect package, but I still think that it's going to require third party on top of that. So, you know, they're solving the core. Here's a virtual desktop with um, containers, solves office profiles, fantastic. It's a form of layering, right? Um, but I still think you're going to need 
probably third-party tools for the foreseeable future to access that and optimize it. So you kind of mentioned Norscale and the acquisition by Citrix and, and WIM. Do you want to talk about that a little bit too? I, I know it's kind of uh, throwing a bit in there, but you, but you mentioned it, so I, I kind of want to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's an, I threw it in there for that reason. I'm glad you picked up on it. It's really, really important, right? Because we were always struggling with you know profiles and printing and user personalization for years. And there were these kind of clunky third-party tools floating around. And Pierre made up his own little user environment manager and then commercialized it. And because we had been out in the field for all these years, knowing the challenges, and even when you had third-party tools, things like AppSense or others, um, he was able to architect from the beginning um, what is now workspace environment management. And it's really significant. You know, the basic concept is user personalization. Pretty much what you'd think of as user GPOs becomes um, structured in a database and can be applied to the user session very, very quickly. It can be done in parallel. There's a lot of great benefits. Coming from the Citrix world, you made the console um, have all the kind of, you know, little tweaky features you need for Citrix, but they're there, like, you know, simple things like drive mappings. You don't need to know all the weird numbers to assign drives and hide them and so forth. So it's really, really powerful. So that was a major step forward when Citrix acquired them to have that part of the product. And then the second major step forward is FS Logics. But in a way, it's good that Microsoft bought them because now it's part of the OS, right? And that's kind of what you need Microsoft to do is, is make the OS and printing and profiles work. So I think this is like a perfect storm of being able to deliver really good EUC. So let's uh, transition to looking at your company website, you know, thinclient.net. Uh, um, and it shows you worked with, you know, many different large organizations across different verticals. And so is there one vertical um, that's more challenging than the others in terms of uh, the projects you're working on and some of the solutions you're deploying? That's a really interesting question because I don't stop and think about these things. You guys really ask from an interesting angle. Uh, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is probably healthcare is it's not even the hardest or the most challenging. It's just maybe more like the slowest. Um, they also have seem to have the most restrictive, prescriptive things coming from their software vendors. You know, so if you take like an Epic, and Rory deals with this a lot, um, you know, what they require the environment to be is very prescriptive and specific. So you're having to design around that. Um, and also the resource requirements, while resource requirements are going berserk everywhere, you know, just the amount of resource a freaking browser uses, right? Um, in healthcare, it seems to be a little almost ridiculous, like how much one client instance. You want to say something about that, Rory, since you live it every day? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. And uh, I worked at a healthcare organization years ago and it was to uh, even more of an extreme than the other places where I worked where uh, I was trying to set up uh, SCCM in the environment. And it took close to nine months just to get the, uh, the service accounts because I wasn't given the access to create my own service accounts. I had to go through another team and it took nine months to get the service accounts to get through to the point of setting up the production instance of SCCM. So it's it's very siloed by nature, um, very risk adverse. So making changes um, 
takes almost an act of God. And then, yeah, like, like you said, um, the vendors, uh, the software vendors tend to maybe, I guess maybe it's erring on the side of caution, but also being somewhat sloppy with their coding where they just keep upping and upping and upping the requirements um, rather than trying to make the software more efficient. Yeah, for the amount of work it's doing, it's essentially just database reads and writes, right? And displaying, it should be a trivial workload, but it's not. Like each instance is gigs and RAM and tons of CPU. It's kind of insane. Yeah, and then there's some some vendors who they kind of upsell on different modules of the product. So if you don't specifically pay for like the Citrix module, then you're getting an instance of the product that goes out and searches a file share on every launch and copies down the entire contents on every launch. So it's like, they're just trying to make it inefficient for Citrix so that you will pay the extra uh, add on to get the more efficient model. So, well, I didn't know about that. I didn't know that stuff was actually monetized. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. By one vendor. Anyway, I'm sure some of the listeners who are in healthcare might know who I'm talking about. The other thing, you know, as an architect and a, and a business owner, I have to do is I have to figure out how much manpower it will take. And then I have to add a multiplier for what you said of all the waiting and, you know, getting basic requests done and generalizing that outside of healthcare. I'll tell you guys, I'm curious if you know what you see from your side, but our biggest kind of holdup right now in general is it's really hard to get people's attention and get response. Um, we, document and design really well. So when we do a, 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 a proper project with a life cycle, not just some services, um, everything's in writing what we need. You know, so there's normally a document like, here's what we need from the firewall. Here's the, you know, the network segments and rules we need. It's taken months and months now just to get IP addresses and firewall rules. I don't know what's going on, but most organizations just seem overworked and um, kind of distracted in ways like being given too much to do. Yeah. I, I definitely have an opinion on that. Cause I've, I've actually been working like internal on an internal IT team for a few years and I've done consulting before that. And I think the big trend and you've already kind of touched on it in this conversation is just how rapidly things are changing. So yeah, Citrix is kind of one, I guess, tool in the tool belt, but is anyone really just a Citrix admin or just a Citrix engineer or a Citrix architect anymore? Probably not. They're working with a much more varied range of products and technologies. It seems like uh, vendors and even businesses are trying to do more, but they're not necessarily ramping up their team size. So they're trying to do more with less and it's just slowing everything down essentially. Yeah. Uh, that's a really good description is it's slowing it down because they're trying to do too much. And then there's a lot of bullshit in the industry more than there used to be. There was always a, you know, our software is awesome. And then you use it and you find the bugs, but now it's like um, there's bigger gotchas um, more around like how it works. Like if you go to Azure, right, you have to learn their process and, and, and it's a whole new way of doing things. It's not bad, but, you know, the, the CIO thinks, oh, we're just going to go to the cloud. And they think cloud means you don't worry about it anymore. You just outsource it. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. You have all the same things to do. It's mostly infrastructure as a service. 
some platform as a service, but not only do you have to still maintain it, you've got to do it their way. And then you run into like weird little things like API limits. Like if you try to send too many commands too fast, it can't keep up. <laughs> so, whoa, I, I can't patch all those systems or whatever, whatever it is. And then the, then the businesses are growing. It's kind of like too much. It's not really sustainable. And this is something that's on my mind a lot. I just spoke about it at Houston as well. And this is where I think the community comes in. And this is where this podcast and everything else you guys do, because you're awesome, is, is really important to be able to find the people that have the knowledge and, and, and share it. Because you're not going to get it just Googling it or rushing around and trying to you know, panic, figure it out. Yeah, I, I think you just touched on it uh, in answering that last question. But I know it's something that you also talked about a little bit uh, in, I think, one of your Excel sessions. So in general, how do you feel about the current state of end-user computing? Uh, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. It's like we have the potential for scale and total awesomeness. We probably also have some of the biggest challenges ever. The challenges used to be simpler. Uh, they were hard to overcome, you know, like printing profiles, you know, making things work, but they were technical and we always seem to be able to do them. Now this um, complexity that you guys both are feeling and referring to is, is somewhat overwhelming, you know. Uh, it's almost too much, but you can do it. And when you do it, it's awesome. So it, lots of opportunity and lots of challenges right now. Um, and it's funny, I just keep coming back to the community because I don't see another solution. I think it, you have to use the community at this point to be successful. So great opportunity, but I think it's harder than it's ever been too. So we talked about, you know, things like Citrus Cloud and, and WVD. So where do you see things going in the next 10 years? Um, I think I see them going to exactly that, you know, to more and more cloud hosted and control plane. Um, I think it's like anything else. I, I always say like, um, you know, technology doesn't go away. It always goes to the back of the data center. You know, so I'm in data centers a lot and I'll be like, well, what are those beige things back there? I remember those, you know, you have like tiers of technology. They never really go away. And I think, you know, the cloud stuff is the next one. So it's, it's kind of like take a number, <laughs> get in line. We'll get to you. Right. We're going to put stuff in the cloud. I think we're definitely moving that way. But I think right now we're moving that way more because the suppliers want you to more than the customer has a pressing need. Though there are absolutely lots of great use cases for cloud. Um, it's still a relatively low percentage, maybe even single digit, maybe 10%, you know, and that'll grow. But it's just another tool in the toolbox in my mind. So going, going back to, you know, everything going cloud and, you know, it's more of the, the vendor side forcing uh, the cloud push. Do you see what, um, what Citrix is doing with it, you know, more of a hybrid solution versus what Microsoft is doing with uh, WVD, which is more cloud focused? You know, do you see a balance there? Do you see kind of both have their place? Do you see one more than the other? What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, that's a great question. That's really the core of a lot of what's going on. That's why I give credit to Citrix for, the, for making it primarily a control plane and let you run it where you want. Um, but also Microsoft's model is good too. And I know they have early adopters who have large numbers of desktops who just want it to be in Azure, right? But I think in practice, 
and this is why you'll continue to need third parties. I think the control plane being flexible across multiple clouds and across on-premises workloads is, is what people need more of the time. You know, that'll address more of the use cases. But having both is awesome, and having um, the multi-user Windows 10 entitlement in WBD is fantastic. Um, their, their brokering control plane is cloud native, it's awesome. The other huge thing about WVD is you ride on Microsoft's network when you use it, you know, which is great, right? If you have offices around the world, they kind of uh, ingress at the closest Microsoft office and then go across the world on Microsoft's backbone. So that's a huge benefit. Although Citrix has elements of that too, just not as widely deployed. So you mentioned one thing in there about multi, multi-cloud control plane. So do you think whoever can get that right to make that the best experience kind of comes out on top there? I think they come out on top because they can service more users. I don't think it's so much that any one user needs to use lots of clouds. You know what I'm saying? Like the Citrix control plane can um, help a customer that wants to be on Azure, AWS, or GCP. Um, but being on multiple, you know, I'm not really sure that matters. What do you guys think? My thought is just more the the control plane side, just in case there's, you know, an issue in one cloud. Because, for example, and I'm, I'm talking oh. purely control plane based here. Um, we've seen something in a Microsoft availability region, you know, cause effect around everywhere. Um, so having a control plane that could be in multiple clouds, whether it's Azure, GCP, AWS, et cetera, that, that's where kind of where I was going with that. Oh, that's yeah. Okay. I thought you meant where the workloads go. That's an awesome point. I, I think that being able to say you're on multi, your control plane is on multiple clouds is a huge selling point. I hadn't even thought about that. That's great. Yeah, I can remember, I think it was the COO of the Google Cloud um, product team at Citrix Synergy a couple of years ago, talking a little bit about that during the keynote too. So that's, Jerry and raised a pretty good point. And it seems like at least for maybe Google and some of the other vendors out there, that is uh, a bit of a focal point. Um, and I will say based on your answer, if the FS Logics team had some influence on uh, getting the FS Logics licenses basically provided to all Microsoft customers, if they could maybe convince Microsoft to get that multi-user Windows 10 out there for everyone on premises, that'd be cool too. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I, you know, maybe in time, but I think it's a crown jewel right now that you know they want they want to drive Azure consumption, right? And if that's the only place you can get it, you have to go there for it. Yeah, right, this man. is my thinking. I, I think they have to hit a certain number first, and then possibly we'll see multi-user, you know, get out there to more uh, options. Interesting. Also, wouldn't it be more work for them not to, if you think about it, that it's been maintaining code bases that have it and code bases that don't? Yeah, yeah I can see that as well. Yeah, because right now you have you have multiple generations of Windows 10 tailing, right? Organizations have a hard time keeping up. But at some point, they'll be at, everyone will generally be at some version. And at that point, do they really want to make that distinction? You know? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, to segue a little bit away from maybe the enterprise IT focus 
specifically. Um, I mentioned in the introduction that you are now part of the Citrix CTP Fellowship. Uh, you've been a Citrix CTP since the program began, and now you're obviously a CTP Fellow. How has the program changed from when it started to now, in your opinion? Yeah, that's really, really interesting um, and valuable, too, for the community to, to hear this and think about it. Um, in the beginning, it was um, just a bunch of rogue, freaky guys who were like crazily, nerdily obsessed with this and know all about it and spent all their time on it. And, um, and, it, and it was awesome. And then around 2006, I think it was, we kind of had the first Geek Speak, which was relatively impromptu at a one-off synergy in Houston um, where we just said like, hey, why don't we have a forum? The people like John Finelli and Laura Whalen who were doing the program back then, let's have a live forum. And it just blew the doors open. Um, what it used to be like at conferences before then was um, totally corporate, totally marketing controlled. And techie guys like us really couldn't speak. And if we did, it had to be generic. Um, there were multiple times where I architected and built large uh, customer solutions. Like one of them was the Mayo Clinic. And when it was presented at Synergy, I wasn't allowed to speak and they weren't allowed to mention me. Isn't that weird? They had to talk only about like Citrix products. And the CTP kind of blew that open. We started to, you know, share information and blog and have these um, really kind of guerrilla events, like things like GeekSpeak. They were kind of crazy back in the day. Like it was not structured and it was, you never knew what someone was gonna say. And at the very first one, the image that explains it all was a big room uh, of people not really understanding what was happening. It was kind of the first time. We were all getting up talking. Sean Bass was up, and VDI was brand new and ridiculous and not capable of anything, and he was just giving the truth. And you looked in the back of the room, and a bunch of executives from Citrix had their arms crossed. They were pissed off, like, you can't say that. You know, you're not supposed to say anything negative. And Mark Templeton was there, shaking his head, excited, going, yeah, yeah, this is great. <laughs> and that says it all, right? You know, the CTPs are people that want to share information and tell the truth. So it kind of went from guerrilla, like no structure, to a very well-organized program now, which shifts things because now you have to specialize a little bit more. Um, you know, you, you don't necessarily have everybody in the same room hammering it out for 12 hours and arguing and then going for a beer. It's kind of a little bit more structured. Um, but I think what's good about it is the voice of the CTP is real at Citrix. It affects roadmaps, products in very, very real ways. But I think that old style, um, guerrilla style, has shifted out of the program, which is fine. And, and I know we're going to talk about it, but that's one of the reasons I have the EUC Master's Retreat, which kind of you know carries that torch of independent, unstructured, uh, get everybody in the same room and bang it out, you know, for the community. So that, that's a good segue into that. So, you know, kind of talking how we kind of lost, you know, the gorilla type stuff we, we talked about uh, through GeekSpeak and some of the CTP stuff. And then we see things like, you know, Bryform no longer is, is happening. Um, EDE VC was, was going for a little bit, but, you know, we, we kind of lost that as well. Um, which is unfortunate because, you know, those conferences 
you know, bring everyone together. Some of the things you're talking about, you know, CUGC is doing some stuff, but um, we've lost a lot of the independent um, conferences except for the EUC master's retreat. So um, tell us a little bit about that. Tell us how it's different from the, the corporate type events um, like Synergy and VMworld, Ignite, et cetera. Um, and, you know, kind of tell us, you know, we know kind of the guerrilla style of it is why you started it, but kind of go into that too as well. Yeah, absolutely. That great point. Thanks for bringing up like Bryform and E2E. Now, of course, E2E is still running in Europe. That's just where Alex can be more successful and gets better turnouts. You know, it's a better metric for him to do the event. Um, and um, Bryform was kind of the one where we all just met up and no matter what you did the rest of the year, you know, you looked forward to Bryform, right? That's where all the peeps were. And, um, you know, I would do these insanely ambitious presentations that took months to do and, you know, hundreds of hours of testing and, you know, it was incredible stretching your abilities. And then you'd go there, they used to be blown away by what people were presenting and doing and sharing. And uh, Brian sold it to Tech Target. It ran for a number of years. It was still a good. But at some point when Brian left, um, Tech Target just made a business decision. You know, they didn't want to be in that business anymore. And we all felt a huge gap. And, um, you know, somebody, so but then we started the user group, the Citrix user groups. And that's actually pretty good. As you said, there's it's a limit to it. It's not the same exchange, but they're really good, particularly the XLs. And um, Rory and I um, started the Phoenix user group. And we got off to a great start. We had a bunch of CTPs and people in Phoenix doing a lot of high-level Citrix. Plus, we have a lot of friends from around the world, so we launched this group, um, and it, took, it was off to a great start. You know, we didn't really even do sponsors. It was just a pure user group. But then it was going so well, somebody said, hey, why don't we go deeper? Why don't we have, like, a weekend event? Of course, I don't know why I do this stuff. I raise my hand. Yeah, I could do that. And... Um, and I did. <laughs> and it's ridiculous. I have no idea what I'm doing. It costs a freaking fortune. I take like a fortune of money that I pledge, which I could lose at any moment. Um, but it's important. And I do it. And when I was faced with an event, I always felt what worked best was that open exchange. And I had this experience uh, several years ago based on, um, this is quite a while ago now, of uh, I, I did a study on the power utilization of thin client devices years ago and included the whole server backend and showed a complete true cost of power between traditional computing and thin clients. And it got the attention of some people in the, in the industry and I was invited to an event, I'll keep this story short, but it's powerful, that was by the Rocky Mountain Institute where they brought in 90 of the top people from every aspect of data center, power, software servers to address um, in the early 2000s the skyrocketing power utilization of data centers and the long story short is they put 90 people in a room and cast the challenge which is that within like five years data centers were going to use all of the power in the united states there would be none left what can we do and that group self-organized into working groups over three days. I went into one around um, virtualization and kind of what we call end-user computing today. And there was a book after three days, a book was written, which completely changed the industry pretty silently because you don't hear about it, but power supplies, data center cooling, software, motherboards, everything were redesigned from that point on because all the right people were there. 
and I saw the power of what's called open space technology. So I created the EUC Master's Treat around that, is invite all the right best people, cast a vision, and let it self-organize. That's a long answer to your question, but that's what it is. It's also a weekend where you can relax. Instead of, um, you know, we don't have you come in at 7.30 and then have a laser show and a marching band, you know, just like kicking you in the ass. It's a retreat <laughs> where you can get up, have coffee, and hang out. And, you know, you can go hike and do other things as well. So out of the the uh, the master retreat, you, you talked about, um, you know, not the typical conference, um, more on conference style. You know, I, I, I did get a laugh um, when you said about the marching band and the laser show. Um, tell us. Uh, so when and where this year and give us the details on that for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, April 17th, 18th and 19th in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, we partnered with the CUGC. So they're holding their XL at the same location. So on April 17th, there's a CUGC XL at, it's called the Suaro in Scottsdale. And then when that ends, we transition into the beginning of the master's retreat, which goes Friday night, Saturday and Sunday. Um, real easy to register. It's right on the website, thinclient.net. You just see a, a link for it. Uh, all the information is up there. And one thing I should say is the title. I'm good at con con uh, choosing confusing names. Um, EUC Master's Retreat. Some people think it means you only come if you're a master. Really, the idea is we invite the masters so everyone else can interact with them. You know, so Rory's been there. And Jarian is a master and is always welcome. We'll talk after this, after the podcast about that. Um, but, you know, Rory, for example, is a master in many areas, including um, application layering, virtualization. And he's spoken about that. And, and when somebody wants to learn about it, they can spend time with Rory. He's a nice guy. He'll help you out. He'll answer your questions. So it's more of that format. When we say masters, it's top people will be there you know, like Rory, like Benny Trish, Ruben Sprout, I mean, on and on, Masters, Roy Takeshi, all these people. And they're available and accessible. And you can um, suggest your own sessions, or you can even just have impromptu gatherings. It's kind of the idea. And I think that's a great idea, having that with uh, your XL event, because people come in for the XL event, you know, even speakers come in to travel, have them stay for the weekend and, and continue on with the Masters retreat. Um, so I think that's a great idea. Well, exactly. And, this, and, and, you know, Citrix funds and the sponsors fund the CUGC. So there is no charge for that event. The Master's Retreat does have a cost that covers the hotel and the food and all that. So you can do a free event, a paid event, or both. Yeah, also, too, for our, our listeners, sorry, Roy, real quick. Also, for our listeners, too, when, um, when this podcast is live on the corresponding blog, we'll put information for the Master's Retreat as well. I was just going to chime in and say, as someone who's been to all of the EUC master's retreats that have taken place, I'll say it's probably the most unique uh, conference that I've ever been to. And if you're in this space, or even if you're not necessarily in end user computing, but you're in like some field of technology, it's definitely worth checking out. Um, personally, I think it's kind of got the somewhat casual feel of E2EVC. It's got that kind of networking feel and just kind of raw conversation feel of, say, the, um, the lunch tables at Citrix Synergy. So it's kind of a mesh of 
all the best things from these other conferences that you might have gone to, but also still very unique in its own right. Um, well, I have to say, Rory, thank you because I appreciate that sentiment, but also actions speak louder than words. And you, you were there all three years and you relo relocated to Ireland and you're making the trip back. So, you know, we appreciate that. And that says a lot. Yeah, that's, that's true. I was actually supposed to be going back in March and I changed my flight to April so I could get there for the, the retreat. So yeah, it's, it's definitely one that I don't intend to miss. Um, but before we let you go, there's, some questions that we usually ask everyone. Uh, is there anything in tech outside of your day job that excites you? Yeah, there's actually quite a bit. I, I'm, when I'm not doing tech, I'm doing tech. <laughs> so uh, for the last couple of years, I got fascinated with blockchain and cryptocurrency, and I operate a cryptocurrency mine because if I don't do enough tech, I might as well just stay up all night and build servers and software, right? Um, that's been incredible and it's informed me in so many ways. And then I also am involved in music and audio production. And when I'm not teching out, architecting EUC or cryptocurrency, um, I, I do technical presentations at, at an industry conference in audio as well. And um, believe it or not, that's like a nice break, right? To go work on a different field. And then I'm a musician and composer, so I use that audio technology all the time to um, you know write compose and record uh, music if you're on Facebook I do a thing called live from Steve's studio but the funny thing is all of these tech and pursuits they all inform each other and I think as a maybe a parting word of advice is you know pursue what interests you because even if it seems like it's taking you off path something that interests you is always the source of learning and insight and when I just follow what I find interesting whether it's reading a book or a hobby or trying something out like cryptocurrency, I always learn so much and I come back to my main field to just knowing more and being better. Well, great. So I just want to, you know, closing things down here. Thank you so much again, Steve, for coming on and talking with us. Um, again, we'll, we'll put the information for the EUC master's retreat um, uh, with the corresponding blog post. So that's out there. Um, any other questions before we close down, Roy? No, I think we covered uh, uh, a lot in a, in a very short amount of time. Thank you, you so much, Steve. Those are great questions. I really appreciate it, guys. And it's some of the things you brought up I don't get to talk about much, so it's really fun to, to share that and uh, really appreciate what you guys do on this podcast and also um, the Five Bites is awesome. Rory, I always listen to it in the gym. So thanks for your questions and discussion, guys, and look forward to continuing to doing more in the community. Well, th thank you again, Steve. And as always, thank you to, uh, to Rory. He's our, our great uh, reoccurring special guest host, co-host. Um, and always make sure to check out his Five Bytes podcast, which will also be uh, in the corresponding blog post. Um, to all of our listeners, uh, thank you. And we'll talk to you next time.